This is my first preach for three months. And um, I've never, I don't think, genuinely, been as excited, but also as daunted about the sermon series that we are beginning today. What we're going to do over the next few weeks is look at the subject of worship and how we have limited that often to things that happen inside a building like this. Whereas actually the vision of worship that we find in scripture is so much bigger and so much richer and so much deeper. But as we've talked about it as a staff team, as I've thought about it and read about it, I've become a little sort of daunted because it's a huge subject and it's an enormous task and it is far beyond um, the scope of one talk. So what I'm going to do this morning is give a bit of an overview um, and then hopefully week by week over the next few weeks in the run up towards Advent, we'll unpack it week by week. So that's where we're going. That's the direction of travel. Um, but I think we need to pray because um, this is certainly way beyond my abilities and talents as a speaker. And if it's going to have the full impact that I think God wants it to have, it's going to need the Holy Spirit to bring it home. Well, historians call them hinge moments. Hinge moments. Moments in history which change everything. There are a few of them. There's a uh, Robert the Bruce statue, Bannockburn, the shooting of JFK, uh, England winning the World Cup, and a year later Scotland beating England at Wembley that somehow meant that Scotland were now world champions uh, just because they'd beaten England at Wembley because England were the world champions before. Um, but there are hinge moments, places often associated with battles that change the course of history, but also change the way in which we look at the world, the way in which we look at other people, the way in which we look at ourselves, and often the way in which we look and think about God. They're often, as I say, associated with place names, often of battles. So in Scottish history, you have Battle of Stirling Bridge, you have the Battle of Bannockburn, you have the Battle of Culloden. Particular place names that were hinge moments where everything shifted because of events that had taken place in those particular locations. In European and world history, they have different names. Agincourt, Trafalgar, Waterloo, Dunkirk, Auschwitz, Hiroshima. Each of those place names has particular resonances. The world is different because of what happened in each of those places. People saw the world differently. They saw each other differently. They saw themselves differently, and often they saw God differently. Even today, we see names like Aleppo or Mosul, and they change the way in which we see the world. Today, we remember another hinge event, not associated with a place name, but somewhat unusually with just two numbers. 9 and 11. 15 years ago, those of us who were alive will never forget where we were, how we felt. As we saw the events unraveling and unfolding in New York. I love this iconic picture 
taken by a professional photographer of this group of people just chatting, oblivious to what was happening behind them across the Hudson Bay. A lovely sunny September morning, just like the one that we've had today, that we will never forget, as in downtown Manhattan, two passenger jets exploded into the World Trade Center in New York. And everything was different. The world was changed. The way in which we looked at the world, the way in which we looked at each other, the way in which we looked perhaps about ourselves, the way in which we even view a particular religion, Islam, was changed by this hinge moment. And 15 years later, we're still living with the effects in Afghanistan and Iraq of this particular event. And it's affected millions and millions and millions of people around the world. Hinge moments do that. The world is different and we see the world, ourselves, other people and God differently because of these hinge moments. Well, biblically and theologically, the end of Romans chapter 11 and the beginning of Romans chapter 12, that passage that Katrina read for us a few moments ago, is a hinge moment. Paul is, is writing about something, he's indicating, he's signifying that something fundamentally has changed in the way in which God and humanity are now to relate to each other. If you haven't got a Bible, do, do grab one. There's some at the front of the, of the balcony and there's some at the back of the ground floor because you, you might need a, a Bible as we go through this. So feel no, no embarrassment, just get up now and, and walk and go and get one. That's okay. People will know what you're doing unless you think, well, he's been preaching for 10 minutes. He's not going anywhere. I'll just keep on going out of the door. Uh, that will be fine as well. Um, but this passage is a hinge moment. As Paul begins to say, things have shifted. Until now, relating to God or gods, whether it be in Judaism or in paganism in the ancient world, usually involved special people wearing special clothes, saying special words in special places, often on special days. But now Paul writes that in this world of priests and temples and shrines and sacrifices, something fundamental has changed. Because Paul now begins to write that we are the sacrifices, we are priests. That now it's not just about carefully crafted services or beautiful music, reverent prayers or inspiring architecture. Important though those things are, True worship is now to be about something far bigger. Real worship, smart worship, as we'll see in a minute, is about something richer and something bigger. From now on, it is not so much about psalms and hymns or songs or prayers, because those, including buildings, might become the things that we worship rather than vehicles to help us worship. From now on, Paul says, something has shifted. From now on, it's not about whether we sing hymns or worship songs, whether we use liturgy or don't use liturgy, whether we wear special clothes or don't wear special clothes. Now, Paul says, we are all priests. 
Now we're all called to make sacrifices. Now we're all enabled to relate to God in a way that was reserved to only a few people before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Something fundamental has changed. This is a hinge moment. From now on, worship is to be about prayer, but it's also to be about poetry. It's to be about creativity and creation. It's about solitude, but it's also about social justice. It's about communion, but it's also about kindness. It's about evangelism, but it's also about the environment. It's about liturgy, but it's also about love. It's about work as worship. It's about the church service ending and the real worship beginning. It's about every time we take bread and wine being a hinge moment when we see ourselves, the world and other people and God differently as a result. In this passage, the end of Romans chapter 11 and the first few verses of Romans chapter 12, Paul reaches the climax of 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Now, if you know anything about the book of Romans, you will know that it's not the most straightforward book. Um, If you ever hear of a church doing a sermon series on the book of Romans, run for the hills. Um, Because it's quite complex, it's quite deep, it's quite challenging, it's quite tough stuff to go through. But what it is, is a comprehensive account of what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul traces um, from the beginning of time right through the history of the Jewish people and before and since. He goes through um, the past, the present and the future. He goes through time and eternity. He goes through history and eschatology. He goes through big words and, and themes like justification and sanctification and glorification and how the old covenant has been um, surpassed and replaced by the new covenant, what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. And after 11 chapters of quite dense, deep, complicated theology, a summary of doctrine and belief, what's called the creedenda, what we should believe in the first 11 chapters, he now goes on, chapter 12, 13, 14, to do the agenda, how we should live differently, how we should behave. So chapters 1 to 11, you have the creedenda, what we should believe, and now, 12, 13, 14, it's the agenda, what we should do. But there's this little hinge between the two. And the hinge is this doxology at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's a nine-line hymn of praise and worship, a doxology full of Old Testament references and imagery. It consists of three acclamations, the depth, the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God, which flow into three questions about God and then three declarations about who God is. The three questions, how... Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Paul is saying, has anyone ever been able to anticipate what God is going to do? 
Who of you, Paul is saying, has known better than God? Where you've gone to God and said, God, I think this is what you should do. In this situation, in this circumstance, or in my life, I think this is what you should do. Paul is saying, who has ever told God what to do? Who has ever known more or better than God? The second question, has God ever needed anyone's advice? Have you ever taken God aside and said, God, I think this is what should happen in this situation? Have you ever taken God aside and given him some advice? No, because he doesn't need our advice, because he's God. And then thirdly, has God ever been short of something and needed someone's help? Paul is saying God is bigger and will always be bigger and deeper and more mysterious than we can ever understand or conceive. Reminds me of a time about 20, 30 years ago when I sat with a church leader, uh, Alan Redpath, who had been minister um, in Moody Church in Chicago and also uh, in Charlotte Chapel here in Edinburgh. It was a, he was, um, I think, about 84 by this time. It was about 18 months before he died. And for some reason, he adopted me. And I used to go and have coffee with him uh, once every two or three weeks. And one week, I was talking with him. And I said, um, do you think now, Alan, because you've been a Christian for about 55, 60 years. You've had this amazing ministry around the world. Do you know God better now than you did when you first became a Christian? And Alan Redpath was silent. And he was silent for about three minutes. And it was just reaching that stage when you're, you know, when you're around elderly people and you're not quite sure, have they dropped off um, or worse? Um, and you're sitting with them. Um, and there was just that sort of moment where I thought, do I go <coughs> loudly just to sort of make sure he's still with me? And Alan just looked at me and said, one thing I know. The more I get to know of God, the more I realize how little I know. And I remember sitting and thinking, if that's you, there's no hope for me. Sixty odd years of being a Christian, the more I get to know of God, the more I realize how little I know. God doesn't need advice or help from us, but sometimes we're really good at that. Sometimes we're really good at suggesting to God that we know better than he does. It might be in our own life. It might be in somebody else's life. It might be in a situation in the world. And we're really good at telling God as to what he should do. What should happen next. It's quite a well-known story of Mrs. Thatcher reading the Bible in a church service and adding a bit into Scripture as she said, and God said to Moses, and in my opinion, quite rightly. <laughs> There's that sense of telling God what to do, that we somehow know better than he does. God is neither in anyone's debt, verse 35. He doesn't owe us anything. And this then leads to these three descriptions about God. He's the creator, all things are from him. He is the sustainer, all things are through him. And he is the goal, all things are for him. And it struck me that such a picture of God is one that we often forget. 
that when we're worshiping, when we come together on a Sunday, when we're in a connect group, when we're in a student gathering, when we're in the youth group, when we're in a corporate time of worship with other people, we often forget who God is. And the reason for that is that we often forget who God is during the week. If we're honest, most of us sin because we either forget who God is or we deliberately choose not to remember who God is. Because if we remembered who God was, we probably wouldn't do the things that we do or say the things that we say or think the things that we think because we would be aware consciously that they fall short of what God's standards are for us. So we either forget who God is, or sometimes, if we're honest, we deliberately choose not to remember who God is. And that's why we sin. But the reality is that as human beings, we are made to worship. You can't stop human beings worshipping. If you look in every civilization throughout the history of humanity, people find something or somebody to worship. It was G.K. Chesterton, I think, who said, if you take God out of modern-day society, it will not be the case that human beings will not worship nothing. They will worship anything. One of the books that I got into over the summer a bit was Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. And he makes the point that both in the New Testament but also in the current day, the church lives in a culture of worship. In New Testament times, there was the worship of Yahweh in Judaism, but also in Greek and Roman society, there was lots of worship going on. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul arrives in the city of Athens, he describes it as a city full of idols. There was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, Ares, the god of war, Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth. And as well as the temples and the shrines, every house, every household had five or six of their own personal chosen altars and shrines where they would make sacrifices every single day. But before they left the house, they would make a sacrifice. When they came back uh, into the house, they would make a sacrifice. So the context into which Paul is writing is one that's very familiar with this idea of altars and places of worship. Now, Keller makes the point that we live in a society that is just as full of idols. He says, we too have our shrines and priesthoods in office blocks, gyms and spas, studios and stadiums, shopping malls and high streets. And that's true. The reality of Scotland in 2016 is not that people have stopped worshipping. The simple reality is that not many of them worship in church. They ever noticed how the, the out-of-town Tesco stores look like churches? Ever seen, they've driven past them and they've got spires with clocks. All that's missing are bells saying every little bit helps. <laughs> but they're designed purposefully to be those places that we're familiar with from our culture where we felt happy going to, but we no longer go to them. So the names of the places where we worship, the temples if you like, might have different names. Easter Road, Tyne Castle, Murrayfield, Harvey Nicks, Premark, H&M, M&S, The Guile, or Ocean Terminal. But they're still places where we worship. And you can see people worshipping every single day. 
Then there are the things that might be good in themselves, but can become idols too easily. Education, huge one in Edinburgh. Education. The family, work, money, success, status, popularity, food. Things that might be good in themselves, but which it's very easy for them to become idols. Keller defines an idol as this. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. What are the things in your life and my life that actually are more important to us than God? What are the things that absorb our hearts and imagination more than God? What are the things that you or I are looking to to give us stuff that actually only God can give? I was thinking about it this week and realized that it is very, very easy for idolatry or for the way in which pagans approach worship to have infected and affected the way in which we as Christians think about worship. You see, in ancient history and in parts of the world today, pagans will, will and people who are worshipping idols will do so for, for several reasons. They'll do it because of protection, because of safety, because of good harvest. It's about the things that you get in return. I will worship this idol, I'll worship this God, and that will mean that I'll be looked after, I'll be kept safe, I'll get the harvest that I need so that I can eat, so I can provide for my family. It's perfectly understandable. But it's quite superstitious. But how much of that way of thinking, if we're honest, has actually affected the way that we think as Christians? I'll worship God so that I'm looked after. I'll worship God so I'm kept safe. I'll worship God so I get the things that I want or need. The ultimate expression is what's called the prosperity gospel. You worship God, you follow Jesus Christ, and he will make you rich, he will make you wealthy, so that you can give away some of it, but it's so you get the stuff. It's very subtle, or maybe not so subtle, but it's influenced by paganism. That's not what Christian worship is about. We shouldn't worship out of fear or superstition or because we expect something in return. God owes us nothing. We don't worship God to attain or obtain more of what we worship. That's idolatry. We worship God because of who he is and we give him worth-ship. But the reality is, as human beings, we are made to worship. Now, some people will take that and say, well, that means that we're made to sing. Or that means that we're made to church, come to church. Or that means that we're made to have communion. Or that means that we're made to go in that building on that day at a particular time and have a special person say some special words behind a special place. Again, Paul says that's not what New Testament worship, what Christian worship is now about. Because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, something has shifted, something has changed. There has been this hinge moment where we view God and ourselves and other people and the world differently 
and it affects the way in which we worship. Now, for the Apostle Paul, the language of worship and sacrifice came easily. It was an idea, as I say, familiar to Romans and Greeks and Jews and Gentiles. Altars and priests were everywhere in the ancient world. And that's one of the reasons why Paul, as he starts Romans chapter 12, uses language that they are familiar with, but gives it a fresh twist. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... In view of everything that I've described in the previous 11 chapters that will take some churches four years to go through in sermons, run for the hills, in view of God's mercy, in view of what God has done in Christ, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. We now are to be the priests, but also with a twist, we are the sacrifices, the living sacrifices. And as somebody wants to observe, the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep on crawling off the altar. We don't want to be on the altar. Quite happy sacrificing dead animals but we're living sacrifices to be offered to God by us, all of us, the priests. Now, to the people who are hearing this or reading this, this would have been mind-blowing stuff. Their minds had been shaped by Greek and Platonic thought, the philosopher Plato. Now, the reality is that there's lots of people like them in churches today who will say that what really matters are the spiritual bits of our life how we feel, how we pray, how we read the Bible, what we do in church. That's what God is interested in. It would have been shocking for them to hear Paul say, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Offer your flesh and blood. Offer your matter as a sacrifice to God because matter matters. That's what he's saying. In the ancient world, and there are still some people today in the church, they will say it doesn't matter what you do with this stuff because it's all about the spiritual stuff. That's what God is interested in. Paul says no. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your true and spiritual worship because the whole of life matters. You are one whole being Heart, mind, soul, flesh and blood, the whole thing. And God is not just interested in your spiritual life. He's interested in life. The whole of your life. And the whole of your life matters to God. And the whole of your life is worship. When I used to work with students, particularly with theological students, it used to really worry me when they used to have two Bibles and I'd say, why, why have you got two Bibles? And they'd say, oh, well, that's for my degree. And that's for my personal devotions. Lots of us live life like that. There's the spiritual compartment over here, the church stuff. And then there's the rest of life that's over here that we don't really think that God is interested in. But God doesn't have compartments. He just sees people. He just sees life, and he's interested in the whole of life. 
What Paul is saying here is that flesh and blood stuff counts. Paul says Christian worship, real worship, is flesh and blood, gritty, earthy, everyday stuff. It involves hearts and minds and skin and bones. It doesn't occur in churches and temples or cathedrals. It happens in offices and homes and schools and hospitals and colleges and universities and banks and job centers. The staff for years now rib me ruthlessly. My kids rib me ruthlessly. Is that often at the end of a service or the end of a talk, I will in prayer talk about the fact that God wants to use us in our schools and universities and colleges and offices and hospitals. And it's become almost like a sort of liturgical response where different members of staff are finishing off my sentences going, oh, you didn't mention that one this week. But there's a reason why I do it. Because God is interested in life. Real worship does not take place at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Real worship takes place in the rest of the week, Monday to Saturday. Where you are, that's where real worship takes place. That is what Paul is saying. So if that's where real worship happens, what's going on when we get together on a Sunday? Or when we go to a connect group or a student gathering or a youth group, what's going on there? Well, another book that I began to read over the summer was written by a guy called James A. Smith. It's called You Are What You Love. And he wrote this. Worship, what we do on a Sunday, is the imagination station. Ever thought of it that way? Rather than saying, I'm going to church... When people say, what are you doing on Sunday? You say, I'm going to the imagination station. There you go, Mark. There's a new job title for you. Director of the imagination station. That's what this should be about. Because we're changing the way in which we think. We're changing the way in which we feel. Every time we come into this place, every time we gather in a connect group, every time we go to a student gathering, every time we go to the youth group, whether we go to PowerPoint or whatever, it should be an imagination station where our imagination comes to life, where our imaginations are are brought to life again. And we start to think, how does God want me to? To live. How does God want me to think? How does God want me to act? Smith continues. You need to curate, look after. That's the curate. Curate, look after your heart well. You need to worship well because you are what you love and you worship what you love and you might not love what you think. And then he ends with this fascinating quote. Discipleship, following Jesus, he says is a way to curate, look after your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He's after nothing less than your wants, your loves and your longings. And he quotes an early church father, St. Augustine, who wrote, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And he observes this. Augustine did not write, You made us to know you, and our minds are ignorant until they understand you. That's a very Western, rational way of thinking about it. And it's the danger of the church, part of the church that we belong to, the evangelical part is that we make discipleship less than it is. 
I love the fact that as a church we offer a school of theology. It's brilliant. I love the fact that we have so many courses. We have the School of Theology, we have the Alpha course, we have Connect Groups, we have the Marriage course, we have a Marriage Preparation course that should go before the Marriage course, we have a Parenting course that comes after the Marriage course. (laughs) Doesn't always, but there you go. And I love the fact that we're able to offer all these different courses. That's brilliant. It's important that we know what we believe and why. But the subtle danger of it is that we start to give the impression that discipleship is about information, not transformation. And that discipleship is about going on a course and reading a book and learning more. Those things are vital. But that primarily is not what discipleship is about. Discipleship is about Jesus Shaping, forming, changing. Yes, how we think. Paul says that. Be transformed, be renewed by the renewing of your minds. But it's about changing our heart, changing our souls, changing who we are, changing the way in which we look at the world, changing the way in which we look about a God, changing the way in which we think about other people, changing the way in which we live, our very souls and affections. That's what should happen on a Sunday or a connect group or a student gathering or the youth group. We are curating our hearts, allowing God to shape them, to begin to love the things that God loves and also to allow our hearts to break over the things that break God's heart. I've got a confession for you. During my sabbatical for five weeks, I didn't go to church shocking I know I'm a professional Christian but I didn't go to church for, for five weeks it was a whole series of weeks when it just we were either traveling or we weren't in the right place uh, we were on an airplane or for a whole host of reasons we, we just hadn't been in a place where we could go to church for five weeks and eventually after on the sixth week we went to church because people were praying for us And just being with other Christians and hearing people sing and and hearing the Bible be taught during the sung worship, because that's one of the main ways that I connect with God, I have to tell you, for about 10, 15 minutes, I was in bits. I just wept. Came alive again. Suddenly realized, I've missed this. And honestly, I missed you lot. I miss P's and G's. I miss being with you. I know, it's strange, it must be God, but I missed you. And I couldn't wait to come back. You see, if you, if you just say, well, I'm going to worship God through walk, walking in the hills or whatever, that's good. But being with God's people, something happens. My imagination comes alive again. Paul says, take worship seriously. The translation of those words what is your spiritual worship, are words really like logical or rational or intelligent or smart worship. That's why the version I've got says your true and proper worship. In response to what God has done, there's only one thing you can do, and that's to live a life of worship in response. But you can't think your way to right worship. It comes from our hearts, our souls, our very being, being renewed 
And if that happens, then we do have a sober, verse 3, view of ourselves. We don't think too highly or too lowly, and therefore we do use the gifts that God has given us. Prophecy, service, teaching, encouragement, giving, leadership, mercy. There are others found in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians. But you see the link. Paul is saying we see God for who he really is. We see ourselves as we really are, and we live different lives as a result. Lives that make people sit up and notice. So this morning, final question. How is your heart? Are you looking after your heart well? Is your heart full, or is your heart empty? Is your heart tired? Or do you feel very close to God? Do you feel close to God even though you feel, or perhaps because you feel tired? Are they putting things into place in your life that will help you to look after your heart well? And will you allow your heart, will I allow my heart to be changed, to allow my mind to be renewed and transformed, and our lives given over to proper, sacrificial, smart, intelligent worship? This should be a hinge moment. This is a hinge moment. As we look back to the hinge moment in history, the cross of Jesus Christ, by which everything has been changed. And it changes the way that we view God. It changes the way that we view ourselves. It changes the way we view other people. And it changes the way we look at God's world. This is a hinge moment. Let's eat and drink and then leave church and then begin to worship.